It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. Today, Robin Jones of Honey Girl Grows returns to the podcast. I'm really glad to have her back. Robin designs, builds, and tends organic edible gardens and apiaries, that's beekeeping folks, for resorts and Michelin star restaurants. She works to create habitat for pollinators and butterflies through designing biodiverse ecosystems. Thanks for chatting with me, Robin. Hi, so thrilled to be here. I'm your number one fan. Oh, and I, you, so this is good. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, you are, we were talking before we started recording, you are one of the busiest women I know. So what have you been up to lately? <laughs> I am just completing a Michelin star, double Michelin star restaurant in LA, Melrose, Providence. I'm, in, I'm completing their install of a really unique garden that I haven't announced yet. It is a rain gutter garden on the walls and high production and the goals are really exciting. They are to uh, have, of course, the freshest harvest possible. Nothing will be on a truck. So the flavor and, and everything will be harvested by the chefs in the morning. Um, but also to offset the amount of those plastic packages, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll eliminate all of the need for that because they will never have those single use trays coming to the restaurant again. And then we've also created a habitat by planting these beautiful plants. And they're also having access to plants that you can't buy necessarily at the farmer's market. And, mm -hmm. you know, there could be flowers that at most farmers don't grow a lot of specialty items we have we can grow whatever we want now and so it's it's a high production it's um low expense and it's a rain gutter garden that's vertical and it's in many walls and it's on a rooftop on melrose avenue and it's um good and hot and we've got two two hives up there and to avoid impacting our native bee species um surrounding we hived existing bees that beekeepers had saved from residential, you know, your compost bin, your owl box, your roof, your shed, your Let, water meter, can, your barbecue. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You guys don't want them there, mm -hmm. but you also don't want to spray pesticides in your ecosystem. So you call a live bee removal service. And then I contact them. And instead of those people having to have a hundred or 50 hives in their yard which is terrible for the ecosystem of native bees then i take them off their hands and put them in a neighborhood that is where they were probably in someone's uh roof or whatever nice <laughs> now i have to ask you because the word you use the words high production and rain gutter gardens in the same yep. sentence and I, I do not associate those two things with one another because most rain gutters don't have enough root space and they get hot and people don't water them enough and they fry and nothing grows so what are you doing that works um it's it well I do have I have invented my own row cover that is Ooh. custom sewn and they we really haven't had a problem with them getting hot surprisingly because i mean we're probably 110 120 up there on a, a really warm in these latest days um it's really hot up there so uh, <laughs> as hot as it is on the ground where we're all whining it's hotter up there so and they i've you know i've touched them and i've actually put my hands in the soil and i'm impressed 
kind of like those galvanized tubs that people grow gardens in. It's kind of a myth that they get hot. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they can be hot on the outside, but not hot in the soil internally. Okay. So um, the other thing is that, you know, a lot of Mediterranean herbs, not all, but many of them are extremely shallow rooted. You can also do berries. You can do all your little petite leaves, the majority of them. It also depends on what time, what size you would want to harvest. These chefs are harvesting most things that are really delicate, beautiful size that needs to be put on a plate with a tweezer. Okay. So if you want a giant kale or a gigantic cabbage, you're not doing it in a rain <laughs> I see. So they're doing mostly microgreens. Is that what's Micro going on? They're not microgreens, but they're petite. Okay. That's, yeah. That makes sense. Cause then they don't put too much of a burden. There isn't too much of a burden on that system. Right. Okay. Well, that makes and sense. There's been a tremendous, we have raised beds as well, but there's been a lot of strategizing and mapping of what goes where and okay. appropriate to the root size. That makes so much sense. Yay. All right. Well, thanks for clearing that up for me. Now, sure. I recently saw on Instagram, you were doing a big honey harvest with culinary students, I think it was, or maybe chefs. That was those chefs. Those chefs. Uh, okay. So talk about five, it. What was that like? Oh, it was so fantastic. We had a five gallon harvest from the, we installed those pipes in the spring and they had a five gallon harvest. It's typical to harvest it um, either in spring or by August is very typical for me in LA. And the other time we got a really good flow is January, believe it or not. Um, people don't know it, but urban spaces are much more supportive of all pollinators and than our wild spaces. So hillsides that go brown, that means there's nothing blooming. You know, I've had a farm, I've had things uh, in wild, beautiful, beautiful ocean view spaces that in you know, in Laguna Beach that, or Malibu that went totally brown once we get to August and then they're brown all the way through December, January. So those spaces don't support bees well at, mm -hmm. of any species or pollinators of any kind because they're round, there's nothing growing. You need right. things green and, and flowering to support them. So this urban space is really doing great. And we had, they had a five gallon harvest and we left so much honey for the bees and I can't believe it I checked on them yesterday and they they're growing into the next box which I put on I put on like here this will help mitigate the heat it's an empty box up here just for heat to rise to you guys aren't going to be up here nope they're up there building so I added one oh, more and did you yep. put frames in there or no in one of them I did and the other I didn't oh, okay and they've taken yeah. over uh, oh my gosh yeah. that could be a big mess but it's also kind of very nice of you to they're do that succeed yeah they're <laughs> succeeding and I'm there often enough that I'm not worried about it that's good that yeah so, but I'm happy that they're succeeding despite this crazy heat and uh, everyone turning their irrigation off right um, yeah yeah uh now, you were talking about the importance of having, of course, pollen and nectar for the bees. Uh, I, I recently sent you an article that I had seen. Uh, the Learning Garden recently sent out a newsletter that had a link to a report from UC Davis, and it was called Bees Per Gallon. And I sent it to you. I was like, this is up your alley. Tell me, you know, let's let's talk about this on the podcast. So let's talk about that, uh, that article and what you, <laughs> what you want to talk about it. Right. So I was going to talk about really quickly. So if oh, we're all being 
becoming more and more aware every year, um, and especially this year in the longest heat wave that we've had in Southern California ever, um, and the worst in, in who knows how long, mm -hmm. in my lifetime, possibly. Anyway, we're all becoming more aware that water is, you know, precious, and we're in big trouble in our state, especially, and we need to be more conscious, and we're getting water regulation, so people are thinking about it right now. And if thinking about it and you're making plans of what to do, um, you know, we all know that you can replace your lawn and have something that looks just like a lawn and you can even mow it if you want to spend <laughs> extra money and time. Mm -hmm. um, and you can even have it be kid proof and soccer proof, et cetera. There are that many varieties of native grasses. Some of them, if you let them uh, flower, even support pollinators. Um, you know, I had a friend who I consult with who uh, just called me in a mayday call because he planted clover in next to a pool and mm -hmm. a neighbor, a neighborhood house and all the kids from the neighbor come over. So you want to do this carefully. You want right. to choose your. Yeah. But not all of them are, are, are concerned, but some of them are if you are planning running barefoot. Not a good idea. <laughs> yeah as a as a kid who stepped on a bee in a clover field when I was a kid you know I was like that that memory is indelible for me but that was before I discovered beekeeping yes so I as a kid apparently as a, a toddler growing up in the valley I stepped on a lot of bees barefoot um <laughs> I have no memory of it but <laughs> better anyway. that way yeah, I was no kidding. We're all thinking about our water and we need to be thinking about what's going to replace our water thirsty landscape. And when we do, you know, a lot of people turn to succulents and have in the last many years. And that's unfortunate because while they're beautiful, they only flower one time a year, mm -hmm. most of them, the majority of them. I, I could be wrong, there could be an exception. And, um, they also get leggy and require more maintenance than people realize to make make them look good. And it is possible to have evergreen and it is possible to have four seasons of bloom in Southern California. And it's even possible to have native, those are all native plants I'm talking about, mm -hmm. by the way. And it's even possible to have flowers that you can cut and bring in your house with this and to have it all be extremely low water use. So what is extremely low? It means watering once a week to every seven to 10 or even 15 days. And some of these, a lot of these native plants, that's the water use that there's, that they require. So it's very, very easy, easier to achieve than people know. You do need to convert to drip. It will save your life. It will save so much water. Right. You will be allowed to water on days that are outside of the regulation because you will still be well, well, well under the regulation. So drip is a lifesaver and drip is what we all need to change. That is the mantra. That is drip the mantra. And native. Right. Drip and native. <laughs> and just to clarify that uh, right now, Los Angeles is under, I think we're at stage three or stage two of the water restrictions that go up to stage five. And until we hit stage four, uh, drip irrigation and food crops are exempt from the restrictions. So right. that's what makes it wonderful to have drip exactly also drip will save your life in a garden your garden will survive despite you right and that is a miraculous thing because we're all humans and and stuff happens so 
it keeps it joyful when you come back and it's not all dead and you still get a harvest despite being, you know, not there. Um, <laughs> so while we're thinking about losing water and losing um, or having to change out or getting to, let's think about it as an opportunity, getting to change out our, our landscape or choose what we plant that's smarter, it's really important really important to not just think about water saving plants or less thirsty plants but which plants in that realm can produce the most food to support our ecosystems and not just are they are they simply not as thirsty and attractive it's really important to balance that so we can call that bees per gallon you're going to be supporting so much more than bees you're going to be supporting butterflies and you're going to be supporting you know, all the bee mimics, we call them because they look like bees, but they're not, but they're really critical pollinators like hoverflies and their babies eat more aphids than any ladybug. Um, and so we want them in our garden. And, you know, there are my minuscule, teeny tiny little wasps that are such beneficial friends. And there are non-stinging docile wasps that will eat your caterpillars, that eat your crops off your plants that you want in your garden and they're not aggressive or defensive so there's so many other critical pollinators we need and we can feed them all but we have to know which plants are the least thirsty that also provide that food um and what are those plants <laughs> yeah okay so what i'm going to say is what you want is a flower you want a flowering plant those are surprisingly sometimes bushes and shrubs and trees and National Geographic did a study of where the honey in a hive came from in Los Angeles. You can find the study. They broke, they looked at it in the lab and it was very surprising where the majority of it came from. Bushes, trees, sh trees and shrubs. So, so National Geographic flowering. study came, uh, showed that most of the bee, most of the honey in Los Angeles came from bushes, trees and trees shrubs and that shrubs. flower that flower yep. yeah so perennials so, yep so when you just turn your water off you're affecting them tremendously yeah, yeah. right you're it, you just took their pantry away basically and we, so flowering plants create nectar nectar is the sugary juice in a flower the flower the plant has to be flowering to have it and it also has to be um open the flower has to be open to access um nectar is the carbohydrate for pollinators and pollen is the protein and both are necessary for honeybees and many many native bees and many uh, both are necessary for some other species of pollinators but usually it's just nectar so which plants use the least water that also have you know an abundance of nectar um that would be okay so this is fascinating the hermaphroditic plants produce nectar every day and refill the nectaries the part of the plant that makes the nectar faster and yeah. so this is very interesting yeah so some of those are like ceanothus which is a gorgeous native it's one of my absolute favorites and i didn't realize this but it comes in so many different varieties like you don't have to have a tree but you could have a little mini tree mm -hmm. that's like waist high or you could have one that's really low and there's even a ground cover mm -hmm. it's called the california lilac because unless you're in the mountains in california we're not cool enough for lilacs but or maybe you're in a canyon you can pull it off but it's really beautiful it's a blue kind of a bluish sometimes bluey 
purple. I, I say purple because it's yeah, you know, it's purple. Yeah. And there, are, there are even white ceanothus, and there's yep. there's a whole range of them. And you're right, there are sizes yeah. that get uh, like eight by eight or four by four or ground yeah, cover. It's just a gorgeous yeah. color. Yeah, and it's a gorgeous plant. You're gonna be pleased looking at it. It blooms for a long time, mm -hmm. multiple months, um, and it can bloom in actually two seasons of the year. Um, and that's because we winter is the new spring and yes. then we also get spring <laughs> and our june is now sort of turning into a spring for southern california leaves so um the other one is what else hermaphroditic plant that uh, blooms has a long nectaring uh hibiscus squash okra and you know when you're growing squash you're supporting the squash bee because those are the only plants that they get pollen from mm -hmm. and the, those little boy bees sleep in those squash flowers. They're so adorable. <laughs> um, they steal my heart. What else? The nectar secretion duration and recharge rates of all of the plants uh, varies by species and cultivar. One of the best that you can um, plant is borage. Oh, and borage is borage, so beautiful too. Stunning. And it has edible flowers that taste a little sweeter than cucumber. And you can also use this plant, I'll explain it later when I get to another one that you can do this with, to chop and drop, I'll, I'll explain it later. But you can also, if you have like, say your parkway, you covered it with heavy, heavy cardboard layers and then you mulched it heavily, got rid of all the grass and all the weeds and you're like, what do I do now? And you wanna add really good nitrogen and make the soil healthier in a really inexpensive way. You just drop down some borage seed. You don't even have to barely cover with dirt. You just cast it literally and water it and you're gonna have a field of borage and you will have just you know invigorated your soil and filled it with nutrients. Yeah, I, I have borage that reseeds itself every year in my garden. It's just mulch and I pull out the dead ones and the, you know, but I wait till they're dead and to pull them out because then the seeds have dropped and then they come back next year tenfold. Yep. So, um, and, and borage is one of the fanciest plants that all the, my fancy chefs want to use all the mission star chefs and those, the nectaries of the borage plant, those flowers refill every two minutes. Literally, what? they are like, yeah, they are like nectar fountains, like champagne nectar wow. yeah, fountains. They're amazing. Um, so what else is at the top? Corn flower, which is also called bachelor button, also edible and beautiful and comes in such a variety of colors and is petite and um, can go in a cup flower, you know, inside as well. You can have some joy for you and bring it in and you can also feed pollinators. It's fantastic. Um, you know, berries. Um, flowering berries. You want to plant those in spring from your canes that you get. They're called. It's a weird thing, mm -hmm. but I know that I know covered this for sure. <laughs> Blackberry so, and raspberries, folks. They come on canes. Yeah. yeah. If you don't know what that is, find her episode. I'm sure she's covered it <laughs> yeah. nine times. I have a um, whole video also, on how to prune your blackberries. <laughs> it's it's long. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Everybody needs that. That's winter studies. Um, all the salvias, which are so beautiful. All, uh, all Russian sage is my absolute favorite. And that is so beautiful. And that is one of the best for nectar. Catnip, go figure. Mm -hmm. um, wisteria, you know, if you're going to plant that, I recommend you do it somewhere away from your house. They have they have pretty, or in a gig enormous, ginormous pot with a trivet. 
that the root system can be invasive, but they are so beautiful. Uh, those are fantastic. Um, and and like, holly. I'm sorry, just back up real quick. Yeah. Uh, with wisteria, you need a really sturdy trellis, like three inch diameter solid posts or like stainless steel. <laughs> you know, like pergola. really, you need a pergola. pergola. Yeah, yeah. We, we rebuilt our pergola because our wisteria had pulled it off of its legs and it was listing <laughs> diagonally to one yep. side. We're like, we're not gonna this. No, we have to rebuild this. So sorry, I interrupted, but no, I no, wanted no. to interject that. So your next and one I'll, was alternatively, if that scares people, they can put wisteria in like a four foot wide pot, literally like a pot that takes two people to, or bigger more to hug okay. and make sure you put a trivet under it. It will thrive and it will do okay in a pot that large. You just have to feed it a little more often. Okay. And then, um, okay, penstemon, which penstemon. are gorgeous. California fuchsia. Oh my gosh, that's like that stunning hot orange red. Uh, it's like putting jewel tones in your garden. So pleasing. Um, verbena. And all of these, most of these really can go through the hottest of summer. Uh, lamb's ear. Stackies, yeah, yeah, it's, it's also called stackies. Alyssum, 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 repeat everywhere. So good. Um, you know, I've been sharing people your your study that you did, your research you did about alyssum warding off the Asian citrus psyllid better than yes, the conventional method. So, thank yay, you. spread the word, spread the word. Yes, yes, yes. Plant that under all your citrus trees, which is also on my list down here. Um, alliums, poppies foxglove which is also called digitalis they make a heart medication from it the bees like to snuggle into each one of those blooms it looks like they're going into a sleeping bag it's adorable cardoon heather rutabecchia which is black-eyed susan budulea um for herbs rosemary which we have all witnessed i think rosemary just saves half the pollinators in the late summer and fall because the only thing blooming and around yeah oregano all when you let your uh, you know what years and years and years ago that's when i fell in love with you first because you said lazy gardeners are the best friends of pollinators because <laughs> you true. let your herbs bloom yeah and that is you're providing food and yeah. I, I was like she's my friend <laughs> um, <laughs> so i'm back to okay basil calamint lavender which is not native but it's definitely i i believe i could be wrong but i believe it's um it's it's a Mediterranean yeah it's Mediterranean yeah. and it's been it's pretty much been naturalized here it's, yeah it's it, it's such a good match for our climate and so then we're back to comfrey which like borage is not something that people typically know of but both of those you can find seed for they're both so easy to seed that meaning plant that you all you have to do is toss them that mm -hmm. we call it casting in the garden world it literally can be the laziest plant planting ever you just throw it and wherever you plant, if it gets some water for three or four days, kind of off and on after that, then it's gonna make it. And it's pretty resilient, doesn't need a lot of water once it's established. Those plants, you can cut the leaves off. You can even cut them almost to the ground. As long as you leave some of the plants, you can, and you can cut all the leaves, like all of the bigger leaves, you can leave the little ones. And you can put them in a bucket and you can cover it with water and leave it for a few days and make a stinky tea that's actually really great. And you can pour it on your soil or use it as a foliar spray. And these are also great for chop and drop. We call, we cut the biggest leaves off, at the ones that look the worst. And we just layer, lasagna layer them on top of 
and then mulch on top of those. And then that's just so good to feed your soil. They're extra nutrient rich and they're really great flowers for pollinators, many, many pollinators. And they're very low in water use. Um, for trees, I have citrus, which Chrissy has a whole book on. Um, <laughs> you should go buy it. And Thank then, you. <laughs> apple, so nice. which you want to get a low, um, low, low chill. chill zone. Yeah, right. low chill zone, like your stone fruit, same thing. Yeah, uh, low chill zone one if you're not in a canyon and don't get a freeze. And we have, so there are four varieties maybe a fifth, uh, we, we can do Anna it, low chill varieties, by the way, are Anna, uh, Fuji is on the cusp. I actually have a productive Fuji. I have it up against a wall that gets morning shade. So I think that's, what's giving me the extra oomph, little chill in the morning. Um, uh, Dorset golden and, uh, pink lady are the four that we can grow in low chill areas. Oh, I absolutely love pink lady. Yeah. Those are the Yum. ones. Awesome. Okay, so what low chill mean is, is it's like, it means that you don't get a freeze where you live, then you need something that has, those trees need some, a freeze typically, but um, they can get, they can still produce fruit and flowers in our areas that don't get cold anymore. So yeah, it'll, it'll still work for you. Um, then already covered, oh, jacaranda, you know, you see the jacaranda all over LA, they burst with purple confetti and we all celebrate. And, you know, I always drive by those and wonder who the hell is watering this. Sometimes they're in the middle of these street thing, you know, like the, the parkway. Yeah. yeah, the parkway. I know. You're like, there's no water here. Yeah. And they're, <laughs> and they make such a beautiful mess, as I like to say, because yeah. the people are like, oh, they're terrible. I'm like, no, they're pretty. And they, and I mean, who doesn't want to walk on a carpet of purple flowers? Come on. Right. right. And they're, they're <laughs> literally humming with with bees, with bees. It, yeah. yeah for a long period I just saw one the other day that was still in bloom and that's since you know June that's really great it's impressive so and then also the chaste tree which I am not familiar with so I'm not either yeah. super low it's got aromatic lavender blooms and it's called vitex angus castu um okay and then, and the list probably goes on and on. I love that you have two pages of notes to talk I about do. this. Yeah, but you know, I I want to point people. I will point people in the direction of this article so they can get kind of a quick summary. And and I will list all of these things that you shared with us today in the blog post that goes along with this, because I want to ask you about something else, which yep. you have done some research on, and this was one of the main reasons why I wanted to have you back on, is because of your your research on monarch caterpillars and their predators, which is not something you hear a lot about. Um, nope. You've been, we've been seeing an uptick in dead chrysalises. They turn black and the caterpillars never emerge from them. So you were posting on Instagram that you were keeping track. What kind of numbers in terms of ratios of dead to living chrysalises have you been seeing lately? So I started um, paying attention and doing counts. Um, and I, I did counts of how they died and what they looked like. And, you know, this, these splotchy dead chrysalises that have black splotches on them, they're often thought they were called previously black death. Mm -hmm. Well, I got curious. So here's the thing. I'm sorry to say that I'm a gross person now but I'm also a curious gross person. So it happens. So when you have a beehive, you start touching like larva and you just, you have to, it just happens. So 
I, it, it desensitizes you and all of a sudden you're touching bugs and their larvae and you don't think it's gross anymore. So I got curious about that, 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 uh, blotchy monarch chrysalis, all of them. And I wondered, I was very suspect about this idea of black death. And so I cut it open and voila, in every single one I dissected, I found a tachinid fly, which is a parasitic fly and it's a good fly, don't hate on it. It's a great fly that farmers use instead of pesticides on crops. It's a really great fly when they parasitize the cabbage moth instead of using pesticides, right? It's mm-hmm. a terrible fly when it's your monarch butterfly caterpillar. So, <laughs> right. There's the problem. And because it's probably, you know, not been hit at all or been hit very, so much less than monarch butterflies have been hit with whatever they're up against, that the numbers are so out of proportion that it's an ecosystem imbalance. So, it's okay in my mind to reduce you know, some of the numbers, if we can keep the numbers of monarchs up, but that's, you know, also a question, you know, do we hit another population of another insect to save another one? What other ecosystem swing will we create? So it's, it's a thing, but monarchs are in trouble. And in Southern California, um, there's been a study on how often these get hit in other states. And I looked at those studies and I contacted Chip who's the lead scientist my mentor is randy oliver from scientificbeekeeping.com and he studied with and was pals with chip from monarchwatch.org and i said i need someone to do a study with because i'm seeing about 80 percent and the studies of looked out that are out there that monarch watch has done are reporting only 15 percent of their monarchs are getting hit with the kind of fly and you'll see some of the, I have these all documented in, in many posts on my Instagram. If you want to go to all the posts that have butterflies, caterpillars, and milkweed, you can learn a lot. But, and it shows images of all the stages. So from caterpillar to chrysalis, um, you can see what it looks like and, and how it presents. But I would suspect it was much greater than we thought. And I talked to him and reached out to him that's who my mentor recommended. And he said, you are correct. Mm. California is in big trouble in Southern California more so than Northern. But um, reports are definitely following up with your what you're witnessing. Um, and we definitely need a study. So if you have money and need somewhere <laughs> to spend it, you can donate to monarchwatch.org. They desperately need money for two studies. Everything is a hypothesis until you have two studies um that prove it and we yeah Yeah. and we need two published and we need two in southern california desperately and so he was really excited that i had reached out and and said that the you know the regulations in california now that the monarchs are on the extinction list it's good and bad it's very bad for southern california because until we have a study that creates an exception you're not supposed to touch eggs chrysalises or caterpillars Mm. or 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 plants that are have any of those on them and chip literally told me we need people to touch them we need people to separate them from the tachinid fly and and not yeah and take those numbers down one thing you can do without breaking the law <laughs> <laughs> being a, a butterfly renegade of mine <laughs> one thing you can do is 
you can reach out to a, an insectary. I use arbicoorganics.com. I do not order online. Always call them because you're ordering something that you don't know how to receive. And they, these are insects. They come frozen. You need to be home. You need to talk to them about it and know what to expect and not have dead insects sitting on your porch that you paid for. So mm. it, that's what I call them and they will get you the right species for your square footage. It's very hard to figure out on your own on their site. Um, I have to ask. So, yes. because I, I recommend Arbico Organics a lot for, you know, parasitic nematodes and, and other, yes. you know, beneficial insects that come in. But so we're, we're toggling this balance between some, you know, importing to kinid flies to protect against cabbage moths and or cabbage worms and other stuff like that. Yeah. But we won't, we don't want too many. So are we now parasitizing, finding something that parasitizes to kinid flies? What are we, what yes. are we ordering there? Yes. You we order Yes. And I spent uh, two years talking to the insectary at Arbico, the, the owner. Um, she's wonderful. And I said, she was like, no one's ever tried to do this, Robin. And I was like, I need to parasitize the parasite, the, mm -hmm. the parasite. But, you know, we have to remember that to kind of fly numbers could also be somewhat um, falsely larger than they should be because farmers are using them because mm -hmm. they're ordering these from insectaries as well. So we, that's one of the reasons their population could be out of whack. And the other is that uh, likely that monarch butterfly populations are declining so rapidly right. and so you can install beneficial nematodes in your soil you want to know the temperature that's right for where you are located to do that um, and you want to know how to do it accurately so that you don't waste your money mm -hmm. and I find it to be incredibly beneficial for the garden as well right now we have those those giant beetles flying around and laying their um grubs, eggs, in yes. your, all your soil that are going to eat your plants. The other day one bit me. And chicken shrimp, they, we call them chicken shrimp, those grubs. If you we... have chickens, <laughs> yes. But you can also, so what I've done is I've left them out in a bucket because they can't climb out of the bucket and the raccoons Birds or crows will come oh, at night yeah, and take them. raccoons would love those. They yeah. love them. And in the morning you find the bucket tipped over and all the grubs are gone. It's pretty cool. I didn't know that crows, my dog will eat them terrifying oh, okay that's yeah, weird I don't let him <laughs> <laughs> so what is the parasitoid of the parasit of the parasitoid that it's we're a trying? beneficial nematode oh okay so what so, is it Steiner nema feltiae I don't know you or... are super advanced <laughs> well sorry. listen to you I will look it up and put it in the show notes all right so okay uh so the the beneficial nematode which is great because we're treating at the soil level and yes. then that cuts that interrupts the life cycle of the tachinid fly and then, but you're not harming anything else. Right. And it's Sherry Frey from Arbicor Organics, that owner that worked with me on this. Okay. Got it. And when you guys order, you should mention Christy Garden Nerd. And when you call on the phone, you should say she's an affiliate to make sure she gets a dollar. Oh, that's she so nice. It. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. She needs, she deserves it and needs it. <laughs> so this is, this is really, an, you know, a huge topic. We could be talking about this. We've already been talking about it for a while, but I, but, you know, most people have been thinking that the reason why the monarchs, uh, the caterpillars are dying is because of OE, which I'm going to butcher in saying this, or 
Ophira Sistus Electroshira, if that's right. You, it, you did so much better than I do. I'm so reading bravo. it. So I'm phonetically still reading. better than I am. Uh, and that, and, <laughs> and so, but, but your theory is not that it's that, that it's the, the, the Tachinid fly instead. And what that looks like is that when, when the chrysalis or the caterpillar has been uh, parasitized, what it looks like is there's like a white thread coming out from them. Often, yes. In okay. fact, I have videos of it. Okay. Um, and I've cut open the ones that that doesn't happen to. And I can tell you, you know, it's all observational. So this is not real data, but I did take data and I raised over almost 2000 monarchs in a year Amazing. and with, with gardens and other projects and raising them outside in the wild, even more than that, like you could triple that. Um, but I have you know, over two years of about 15, 1600, 14 to 1600. And it's about 80%. And when they peak is when we get warm. So in Southern California, we don't get warm until Ju July. Mm -hmm. Summer doesn't even show up until July. And that's when they peak. So OE is a bacterial parasite. Yes. That co-evolved with the monarch butterfly. I've said that incorrectly. That's why I paused. <laughs> <laughs> it comes out with the monarch butterfly and it is not something that another butterfly can catch nor a human, but it spreads uh, through the plants, through the egg that that mama monarch lays onto the plant. Sometimes usually the caterpillar eat, little baby egg eats its way out of its own egg, the caterpillar. And first thing it eats is this egg. And then it has ingested some of those cells. So those those spore loads of that parasite actually spread through every time that monarch butterfly lands. So oh. when your plants get tall, they've got more spore loads on them. So I have a whole, I have multiple videos about how to cut your milkweed on social media and when. And if you have more than one mil milkweed plant, it's ideal to phase your cuttings and lay them next to the other plants that way, because I have really good vision with my contacts in and, <laughs> <laughs> and I still miss them sometimes. And it's because uh, they are really teeny tiny. Yeah. And so it's really easy to miss and it's just easier to lay the plant cuttings next to something else and let them crawl back up onto the other host plant that you have and phase your cuttings. And if you start phasing your cuttings in July, beginning of July, and keep cutting and phasing through September end, you could even go through October end, you, you know, we start to get cooler in the evenings in November, you will reduce dechinid fly tremendously. You know, you have to know that your pollinator garden, your butterfly garden is sadly raising more to kind of fly than it is monarch butterfly August through September, no, August through October. So, or yeah, August, July through October, really. So it's raising to kind of flies and OE. Um, yes. If you haven't cut your plants. Yes. Okay. And yeah. And uh, Xerxes, which is one of the pollinator experts out there, it tells people a blanket recommendation of that. You should cut your milkweed in at Christmas. You should not. 
our monarch butterflies in Southern California go all the way through mid-February. Yeah, I, I, you know, if you look at the map, and this is something that has always confused me because not only Xerxes, but the uh, Theodore Payne Foundation talks about cutting milkweed down in the fall. And I'm like, but monarchs overwinter here in <laughs> in, yep. in this area. And ours are still milkweed. laying all the way through yeah. to the beginning of February, sometimes through to the end, they're still, still, it depends on our temperatures. Yeah. So you also are going to get that last seasons of, of monarchs that last season is our spring season so when you say the winter counts are low or you say the spring counts are low that's because you cut your milkweed down <laughs> you yeah. know you're not helping right that's not helping also the winter those cooler so november december january to february 15th ish those uh, that's four months that you offset the four months of heat, July, August, September, October, where you don't want your plants tall and the OE is really higher. It's, and I have to say though, the OE takes out such a lower percentage at, at the most, it's 20% it affects of, of the monarchs. It's a kind of wipes out 80% in Southern California. Amazing. It's a massive, it's the reason why people go into their butterfly gardens and say, we had so many caterpillars and chrysalises and now there are none, what happened? And they think birds or they come up with all these reasons and yeah. somebody spray, none of them are the reason. No, and I, well, I have seen, I've watched a spider walk away with a baby uh, monarch caterpillar. That is not the 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 main reason okay. it's not the majority of it yeah yeah wow oh my god is high. yeah 80 percent is high someone just asked, asked me on social media they were like my father is about to rip out his butterfly garden i said when you accept that you are raising 80 percent that only 20 percent are going to make it july through october and you cut your milk, you, I said, you can just cut that milkweed down repeatedly those months if you want. That is a way to not have to buy any beneficial bugs or do anything fancy. And that alone reduces OE, reduces to kind of fly. And then you can, you know, you're gonna get a boom in November as soon as we get cooler and then to kind of fly uh, larva die. Got it. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Robin. And. I feel like, God, I'm, I'm about to ask you, it's tip time, but you've just given us like it's time. <laughs> Do you have What's anything my else tip? you'd like my to share? My tip is drip irrigation, okay. people. It is the game changer in gardening. It will save your life. Drip irrigation. And my other tip is don't put your garden bed next to a tree. God, please. Don't put your garden bed next to a tree. I have a whole video on this, on why why most vegetable gardens become underproductive are in failed. under two years, yeah. or fail in two years. It's the roots, people, the tree roots. So no. that's, that's what's they going on. So, you. Yeah, I know, you. but you're not going to do it. And, and like out beyond the canopy, folks, out beyond the canopy of the tree, because those roots travel as far out as least to the drip line of the canopy. You're not even supposed to step on the underneath, underneath the canopy yeah so ever i know and <laughs> and every landscape designer out there is like planting pretty flowers in the root zone of the tree i'm like they don't want the same kind of water and and don't do it so just don't do it all right keep it like put a mulch <laughs> ring around there and just like that's yep. it that's it all right well thank you so much robin for being here on the gardener tip of the week podcast can you share your information where people can find you because you okay yes you can find me a lot on TikTok, 
God save me on Instagram, on Twitter. I have a holding place website. You can email me at honeygirlgrows at gmail.com. My website's really lame, but it's honeygirlgrows.com. Someday it won't be lame. Um, and what's I'm your handle on what's your, I know, I know. I'm surprised we were able to schedule this. I've been trying to schedule this for months. Uh, what's your handle on uh, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter? Honey girl grows, like grows a garden with a G. Got it. Okay. All right, garden nerds. This was a, an action-packed uh, episode. <laughs> I hope you enjoy this, this, this episode. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're also going to put all of these things in the show notes. So go to gardennerd.com to find out more about everything we talked about today. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under Garden Nerd One, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!